open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to notice verses 23 through 29. Hebrews chapter 12, 23 through the balance of the chapter. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken as of the things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. The kingdom of Christ is the greatest institution the world has ever known. Not only do we have within it the ability to save ourselves from eternal damnation and enter into heaven, uh, a justified saint according to the rules of God, we also have in this lifetime the comforts that come with being members of that church. I think uh, though I wasn't able to Send Carl a text, I'd left my phone in the office. He couldn't have chosen better songs regarding the text tonight. Uh, the things that we receive, the blessings that we receive in this life, while members of the church physically are immeasurable. We have those upon whom we can depend. We have those with whom we have wonderful fellowship and love. And we have those who we can always know that we can be faithful to God and we expect each other to do that. Throughout the Scripture, the kingdom has always been identified as the church, the one for which Christ gave Himself, Acts 20, 28. In fact, Jesus instructed that fact uh, to the world that the kingdom and the church of Christ are exactly the same institution. Notice what He said in Matthew 16, beginning with 18. He said, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock the confession that he had just made that Christ, that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, he said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Not even death itself can stop the church. Someone might uh, seek to destroy the Christ, and they did seek to destroy him, and they destroyed his physical body for a period of time. But that did not even stop the church. He said, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. We see the, the, those keys exercised in Acts chapter 2, and they were the keys that opened the door to heaven. The gospel that allowed people to come in and be the things, or be the people that God needed them to be. Paul identified the kingdom when he made this statement to the Colossian brethren, Colossians 1, verses 13, and then also 18. He said, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us in the kingdom of his dear Son? And he is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. 
There can be no misunderstanding. The kingdom of God is the church of Christ. That's what Jesus established. That's what He created by giving Himself upon the cross. Now in the passage from Hebrews that we just read, the writer was discussing the account of Moses as he went to the top of Mount Sinai, somewhere upon that mountain, and received the law from God. We know that as the old law or the law of Moses. They lived under that law for some 1,500 years. And he received that on Mount Sinai. And he made the point, the writer of Hebrews did, that when God spoke, the mountain shook. God's powerful. He does, he does what, he, what He says He'll do and He says what He'll do. He also uh, said God would not only shake the earth, but He would also shake heaven. He would shake heaven and earth. And However... He said, the unshakable or unmovable thing shall remain. What's he talking about? It is declared, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ shall never be moved, but it will endure forever, Hebrews 12, 28. It's not going anywhere. He also said those who would receive the kingdom, that kingdom that cannot be moved, that kingdom... In essence, what he is saying cannot be destroyed are those who have come into the general assembly in the church of the first, uh, firstborn, verse 23 of our passage. So if we come into the general assembly of the church, the church universal, we will not be destroyed. We will endure as well. Christ promised that the church would come with power. We read about that. In Mark 9, verse 1, not only would it come with power, it would come with power during the lifetimes of those who were standing there listening to it. It's not something into the future. It's not something that, that the premillennialist would, uh, would have us to believe that once Christ comes back, then He will establish the kingdom and, and it'll be an earthly kingdom for 1,000 years. That's not what the Lord said Mark 9, was it? Mark 9, verse 1, it's going to happen. And it's going to happen in the lifetimes of those who, who were listening. Now, either Jesus told the truth that it would come during the lifetimes of those people who were living there, we've got someone somewhere or a group of them who are about 2,000 years old. Now, we know better than that, don't we? We know that's not the case. And after pre Peter preached on that day of Pentecost, when uh, uh, we see that the kingdom came with power in Acts chapter 2, notice what it says in verse 47. The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. We know the church and the kingdom are the same things. And so those who are going to be in the general assembly of the church, they are the ones who are in the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God, and they are the ones who, along with that institution, shall endure. Because the kingdom is steadfast, which means it will remain. Nothing's going to stop it. When all the temporary things of this life have ended, and they will end, the church will continue. The members who had been called into that general assembly, those who had given themselves, it is that group of people who are the elect. And Paul told those in Thessalonica that once Christ returns, those who are faithful will, will go to meet Christ in the air and go and be with Him forever in eternity. The church will endure forever and nothing can destroy it. Nothing in this world can destroy it or can it destroy those who are faithful members of it. Oh, the physical life's not going to last. 
but the spirit of man goes on eternally, and the faithful one will always be with God. Now, this evening, I want us to talk a little while about the eternal church. That's the, the title of the sermon, and the fact that the church is so strong that it will endure. I want us to notice three things about why the church is, is eternal, why it will never be destroyed. And the first one we're going to mention tonight that we're going to notice is it is strong enough that the power of Satan cannot destroy it. That's our first point. The power of Satan cannot take it away. How was it that Satan tried to thwart the coming of the church? Well, he thought by sending Christ to the cross, didn't he? He thought by sending, sending the righteous one to the cross would put an end to all those plans. See, he's not deity. He's not God. He has a mind like all the rest of us. He just happens to be a spirit. He doesn't have a physical body, but he doesn't have, he doesn't have the ability of uh, knowing all things or being all places at one time. He's not all powerful, so he didn't understand. He didn't understand all that God had in mind because he too doesn't have the mind of God. So he used his power to try to stop. Now notice how Satan will do that. Satan attacks the church collectively and he attacks the individuals separately, doesn't he? He's working every angle he can get his hands on. Anything he can do to try to destroy the church, he's going to do it. Now, he knows that's not going to be possible now, but he wants to take as many people who would be faithful with him. Now, Christ taught us in Luke chapter 8, verse 11, that the seed of the kingdom is the Word of God. Now, I want us to notice that's where Satan first points his power. He wants to attack the seed. You recall how that parable goes? He described the Lord did. Satan is the, the, uh, the one who would come through and snatch the seed. Right? He wants to snatch the power of God, the gospel, right out of the hands of those who would listen so it cannot take root in the heart of the potential believer. Now, he can prevent someone from believing the gospel if he can take the gospel away from them. Now, there's different ways to take the gospel away, right? He might in some way through uh, <clears throat> the people who are on his side in this physical world, whether they realize it or not, he might do things in this physical world to prevent the gospel from just simply going somewhere. Brother Preston talked about places in the world where the gospel hasn't been, and there are places in the world today where the gospel has not been. Now, there are not very many, but I know that they're there because I've been there. I've been to some of those places. But we took the gospel to it. Now see, Satan wants to try to prevent that. He wants that. He doesn't want that to happen. But if he can't do that, what does he do? How can he snatch the seed of life from the hands of people who want to be members of the Lord's church? What about if he perverts the gospel? What if he changes it just a little bit? It works every time, doesn't it? If you plant seed that is not good seed, what happens? It might, it might spring up, but it's not going to do much, is it? It's not going to do much. I grew up in a farming community, and, and you'd go by and people planted all types of things. And sometimes you could tell whether, whether it was a good year or not. You'd go to certain parts of the county, and you might see whatever they had planted, it just be that tall. You know, it might be six or eight inches tall, whatever it is. And we're halfway through summer. Well, it's not going to be a good year, is it? Not going to be a good year because that wasn't something was wrong. The soil wasn't properly cared for. The seed wasn't good. Something was wrong. But see, that's how Satan works in the spiritual realm. He wants to 
pervert the seed. He wants to take it out of the hands of those who would uh, take it. Jesus said this, Luke 8 verse 12, Take away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. See, it is the power, truly, of God unto salvation. Now, of course, the Apostle Paul made the same point to the Corinthians. Notice what he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning with verse 3. He said, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, would shine unto them. Those who do not respond positively to the gospel of Christ have been blinded by the activities of the God of this world. Now, when we talk about the God of this world, Again, we're not talking about deity. He's not deity. He is just the ruler over worldly things, isn't He? Nothing. He is uh, spiritually bankrupt. There's not a spiritual uh, aspect to the characteristics or the character of Satan. He's wholly evil and apart from God. And so through His activities, however that happens, we know it doesn't happen like it used to that we read about in the New Testament. He can't directly affect us or in the Old Testament, but through those who would be on His side, He has certainly, through His activities, blinded the world. We need to view Satan in the, in the proper light, don't we? Satan is a miserable failure. He really is, and if we want to begin to break it down and look at it, we can learn a lot about his failures. He tried to fight against God, didn't he? In some way, prior to... Uh, evidently the earth being formed after the, the angels were created, in some way, according to Jude and Peter, in some way Satan rebelled against God. Now we're not told exactly how he did it, but Paul talked about uh, when he was describing the eldership and the, uh, the traits that an elder must have, the qualifications, he said they can't be a novice lest they be lifted up with pride and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So it must have had something to do with pride. Now, as I read that, I personally think, well, in some way Satan was lifted up with pride and he didn't like the estate that he was given because we learned from Peter that they left their former estate. He thought he might ought to have been elevated a little bit. I don't know. We're not told exactly, but that's what it appears. At any rate, he rebelled against God and he failed miserably. Failed miserably. Now we studied in the Revelation some time back before we began our church history study. And we talked about some of the uh, figurative statements made in there. And we, we talked about the war that was in heaven. Well, a lot of people believe that was the time when Satan rebelled against God and, and he was cast from heaven. That's not when that was. That's not what that's talking about. Talking about something entirely different. This isn't a Revelation class, but at any rate, there was no war in heaven. That's a figurative statement. If you go to war, that means that you have at least some idea that you might be victorious, right? There's not, a, not an army in the world that goes to war that thinks they can't have some kind of success. There's no success against God if you fight God, right? There was no war in heaven. There was simply disobedience and God immediately handled it. That's how He does it, isn't it? He immediately handled it. He cast Satan down. He cast those who followed Him down. And so he tried to rebel against God and he failed. Well, he tried to stop Christ's ministry, didn't he? He tempted him for 40 days and 40 nights. We'll read about that. Matthew chapter uh, 3, I think it is. Matthew chapter 4. And uh, 
he went in and, and, and we read specifically about the final three temptations. But he did it for 40 days and 40 nights. Christ hadn't eaten a thing, he hadn't drank any water, and he said, well, turn these stones to bread. Listen, most people would have done that, wouldn't they, if they'd had the ability. Most people would have done that, hadn't eaten a bite in 40 days. Took him up on a mountain and said, look at all the kingdoms. If you'll fall down and worship me, I'll give them to you. Most people would, would fall for that. They would do it. Took him up on the temple, and he said, if you really are the Christ, then throw yourself down. Prove who you are. Christ doesn't have to prove who He is. God doesn't have to prove who He is. Do you notice in Genesis chapter 1, it says in verse 1, In the beginning God, at no point did the Holy Spirit make a case for the existence of God. He just simply said, in the beginning God. God doesn't have to make a case for Himself. Most people being full of pride would say, well I'll show you exactly who I am. Not the Christ. So He tried everything in the world to throw Him off of course and He fell miserably. He tried to keep people out of heaven, didn't he? And the only reason he can accomplish that today is if we allow him to do it. So when we look at the power of Satan, he is powerful. We never need to underestimate our enemies. But he's powerful only if we allow him to be. Even though he hasn't stopped the seed from being sown, he does not give up. With his power, he will attack the seed. And then, here's what he does. Do you know who he spends all of his time and attention on? The saints. The saints. Now that makes it, that's whittled it down quite a bit, hasn't it? That makes a big difference. Once a seed has been planted and it produces saints, Christ, or uh, Satan, focuses upon those people who've obeyed the gospel. There are over 7 billion people in this world. Over 7 billion people. The best estimate, and I don't think we have this many Christians in the world, but the best estimate I can get to, we might have somewhere around 10 million in the whole of the world. I don't think we have that many. We have uh, 1.5 to 2 million in this nation, and they aren't all faithful. Okay? So Satan doesn't have a whole, uh, in comparison to the world, he doesn't have a huge number on his hands. And of course, he doesn't have to rest. He doesn't have to eat. He can do whatever he wants to do when he wants to do it. He just simply can't uh, attack us in a miraculous way. And so he focuses on the saints. He doesn't care about the world. I know when we, uh, uh, when we lived in Memphis, there was uh, a person who had bought this restaurant. He wanted to open that thing up, and it was going to be uh, 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 some kind of a bar. It was going to be some kind of a, a place where, where people could go, men could go, and they had women dancers and things like that. Well, we fought against that. We fought against that, and as far as I know, they still don't have it in there. But... Do you think for a second Satan's worried about that guy? <laughs> Satan's not worried about him. He's not worried about those people who go, who would, who would uh, patronize a place like that. He's not worried about them. He's worried about the saint. He wants the saint to lose his or her soul. So he attacks the saints. Now, that's why Peter wrote this. We remember at 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober, be vigilant. For your adversary the devil walketh about like a roaring lion seeketh whom he may devour. Peter warned the Christian to be discreet and to be watchful in this life because the power of Satan is levied against the saints. Because he wants to destroy the church. He wants to destroy the church. We are the church, right? Sometimes... I think members of the church kind of get this institutionalized sense about what the church is, and they say, well, the church will do that, or the church will do this. We'll, you know, we'll let the church handle that. 
We are the church. That means we need to do it. That means we need to handle it, right? That means we have a job to do. And so each member makes up the church, and that's who Satan focuses on. Paul warned the Corinthian brethren, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11, he said, Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. He'll use anything he can use to cause one to stumble. Because he wants to destroy the church. And he feels like if he can cause us to lose our souls, he can destroy the church. Now he might make the church stop existing in a particular spot in the world. That's happened. That's happened. But the church overall will never be destroyed. It is eternal because the members will go on to heaven and they will be there eternally with God. James encouraged each of us. James 4 verse 7, he said, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's all we need to do. It's simple, isn't it? We solved all the world's problems right there in just a few moments. All, all that is necessary to defeat Satan is simply resist his power. But that's a little more difficult than easy at times. But let's be strong in the in the power of His might. Paul said, let's put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to, to stand against the wiles of the devil, Ephesians 6, verses 10 and 11. Let's do that. It's a difficult road to, to travel. Uh, I, I grew up, and uh, I've talked about working with my dad in the garden, and there were certain aspects of the garden he just wasn't going to do anymore. I guess he felt like he'd graduated up to the point where he had a son that would handle that for him, and as much as I pleaded and begged with him every single year, I said, let's buy our potatoes. Let's buy them. I said, let's don't plant them. You can buy them cheaper than you can plant them. And uh, no, he wanted to grow them each year. And I was in charge of those long rows of potatoes, at least as long as this auditorium, and probably eight or ten of them. And he wanted a ridge that was about knee high, and he didn't want any weeds. And so I'd get out there with a hoe, and I'd start... Hoeing, he'd come through and, and thinking that he was comical in some way. He said, boy, it's a long, hoe, long road to hoe, ain't it? I just shake my head and just keep on hoeing. See, that's the way life is, though, sometimes, isn't it? We look out, and it's like that road never ends. Have you ever been in the garden? You've done that. I know Clay raised the garden. I don't know if he does so much, but I know that Margaret knows what I'm talking about. she look out at the end of that row, and it's like it never comes to an end. That's what the Christian life is. Brethren, we're in a marathon. We're in a marathon. We need to stay strong in the Lord. And that calls for total dedication to God and His righteousness. Then we can enjoy the eternal church. The church is eternal. It will never be destroyed by the power of Satan or by the pressure of the world. That's our second point. There are a whole lot of people in the world that do not want the church to exist. Now I want us to think about this. Back when the, the New Testament was being preached and being written, from Acts chapter 2 forward in the history of time, not everyone who heard the Word of God obeyed it. Not everyone became a Christian. We look in Acts chapter 2 and we say, wow, 3,000 souls, that is a huge congregation of the Lord's people, and it is. The only thing is there were probably 2.5 million people there. Probably 2.5 million people. So not very many people obeyed the gospel. In fact, most people rejected the gospel. In fact, most people will always reject the gospel. God's people are in the minority, brethren. They always will be. There are only a few who will enter in at the narrow gate and walk that straight path. The majority of the world will enter in at the wide gate. They'll walk that broad path because it's easy. It's easy. We don't have to fight against Satan. We don't have to resist the temptations of this life. We don't have to stand firm 
in what we know is the right thing. And we don't have to do what's right simply because it's right. Because that's what God expects, isn't it? And so, there have always been those in the world who were faithless. They could have cared less about God. We can go back to the very, almost the beginning of time. Did Cain care anything about God? Not that I can read. He didn't seem to be bothered too badly that he murdered his own brother. But what was he concerned with? Oh, you've punished me far greater than I can ever endure. Now when I go, people will want to take my life. Well, you just took somebody's life. Why shouldn't your life be taken, right? Man who sheds man's blood, his life will be taken. That's God's law. But God, in His grace and mercy, protected Cain. Protected Cain. Cain didn't appreciate that. Cain did not appreciate that. You know, it really bothers me. And in the news here lately, we've been reading a lot about uh, the state of Alabama, uh, the state of Tennessee here recently, put to death some convicted killers. And God bless the state for doing that. I'll just tell you uh, Romans chapter 13. God bless the state for doing that. And here's what bothers me to, to no end. Those criminals who would rape and murder innocent people, and usually that's what it is, would stand before our court system and say, you can't put me to death because it's cruel and inhumane. It's cruel and unusual punishment. I tell you, you can't get much crueler or more unusual than than beating someone to death with a cement block after you've raped them. That's awful, isn't it? That's awful. There are faithless people in the world who could care less about God. And that's always been the case. So we can't let the pressures of the faithless to cause us to get off of our uh, track we're on. Some did believe... Thankful for that, and the church was established, Acts chapter 2. While the faithful scoff and make fun of the gospel, here's what Paul said. He said, it is the power of God unto salvation. He told those in Corinth that God's wisdom would save the world. The foolishness of God, he called it, didn't he? Because the people said they were wise. He said, the foolishness of God is what saves the world. When Peter and John were arrested... Because they preached Christ and Him crucified, they stood up against the faithless. They didn't back down. They weren't going to stop. And not only did they proclaim the power of Jesus in Acts chapter 4 to be able to heal all people, they proved it. And not only did they do that, they declared that there's no other name under heaven whereby we might be saved. And they stood right in the face of those faithless who were threatening their very lives They beat them, sent them on their way. They didn't kill them because they feared the people. They just simply endured and went on. They took their beating and they went on. They continued to preach. When they were arrested again and warned, you remember what they said in Acts chapter 5 verse 28? They said, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. You have filled Jerusalem with what what a compliment. And they didn't even realize they were complimenting them, did they? You filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. You know what they said, the reply, and we remember it. He said, well, for we cannot speak the things which we have seen and heard. Why? Because whether you like it or not, in essence, a paraphrase, we're not going to stop preaching. We're going to please God. We're not here to please you. Christians are not in the business of pleasing the faithless. Christians are in the business of pleasing God. 
but uh, Satan will use the pressure of the faithless and they will uh, put on the pressure. They'll put on the pressure. Do we feel that way? Do we feel that way? Have we ever been faced? Now, we're fortunate in this country. We really face no kind of uh, uh, persecution really to amount to anything. Someone might make fun of us a little bit, might, might talk about us, get on the news and talk about the crazy backward people who believe in God. Uh, but that's about all that, that they're going to do. But what if we were faced with real persecution? You recall what Jeremiah said. I love this statement found in Jeremiah 20, verse 1. Jeremiah had become a little downtrodden. He had become a little discouraged. And he said, I'm just simply going to stop preaching. I'm not going to mention the name of the Lord anymore because it's just not getting me anywhere. In essence, is what he was thinking, right? Notice what he said. He said, then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. He was through. But his word was in my heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. What's the key phrase there? His word was shut up in my heart. We talked about that this morning with David, didn't we? Psalm 119.11, Thy word have I hidden in my heart. If we hide the Word of God and we put the Word of God in our hearts, it will be like a burning fire shut up in our bones and, and we'll be worn out with trying to hold it back. And then finally, we just can't stay. We'll just have to let it go forth. That's what Jeremiah did. Jeremiah did not allow the faithless to stop him. And we can't allow the pressure of the false teachers in the world to stop us either. Are they out there? They've always been with us. From the very beginning of the church... False teachers have always found a place within God's people. Peter warned in 2 Peter 2 verse 1, he said, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that brought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. See what, Jesus, uh, what Satan is doing through the pressure of the false teacher? He's making a, an attack with his power on the seed. The Word, He's changing it. He doesn't want it to take root. He wants it to be destroyed. But the truth is, the truth will always be the truth. doesn't matter how many lies are told. doesn't matter how many false doctrines are taught. In the end, Jesus said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but My Word shall not pass away. Matthew 24, 35. And it's up to us. It is our responsibility as Christians, as members of the Lord's church. Don't fall for that. There's no reason to fall for it, right? If we open up a book and we learn how to, how to do a particular thing and we have the directions how to do it, why should we ever do it the wrong way? Just because someone comes along and says, now wait a minute, you need to do it this way. Well, I've got the directions right here. I've got the directions right here. I'm trying to do something on my car. Or I'm trying to, trying to do this or do that. Well, I've got the directions. Why should I listen to you? But people in the religious world will do that. They'll do it. Listen, let's not pay attention to false teachers. John warned, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits. Try those people whether they are of God because many false prophets are gone out into the world. And that is exactly what successful Christians have been doing now for about 2,000 years. And we need to continue to do that. The eternal church will not be destroyed. It will not be destroyed by false teachers because of the faithfulness of its members. It will not be destroyed by the power of God, whether the power of Satan, whether against the seed or the saint. It won't fall to the 
pressures of the world, whether it's from the faithful, faithless, or false teachers. But here's the real reason. Beyond all of that, here's why the eternal church will never fail. It will never be destroyed because of the promise of Christ. That's our last point. The first part of His promise was that He would save those who were members of His church. Period. We can trust Him, can't we? He told Peter and the other apostles, Matthew 16, 18, He said, And I say also unto thee, we read this a moment ago, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church in the gates of hell, or the gates of Hades, death itself, shall not prevail against it. That is a guarantee of protection. That is a guarantee of protection. It's very likely Peter lost his life in martyrdom. Very likely that all the other apostles lost their lives in the same way, saving John, who died, it appears, of a natural death as an old man. But that was a protection period. No one can take away salvation. Jesus promised to save the faithful. Christ cares for us. He cares for us. He protects us through His church. He protects our spiritual souls. And He told the apostles as they went out to fulfill the Great Commission, And lo, I will be with you always, even unto the end of the age. Amen. Matthew 28, verse 20. Jesus loves and protects the church in the exact same way that a husband ought to love and protect his wife. That's what Paul said in Ephesians 5, 25. He said, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and He gave Himself for it. I've used this example a lot of times, but I think it is such a good one. I was studying with a young couple prior to them uh, thinking about getting married and studying with the, uh, with the uh, young girl, and, and uh, we were trying to convert her, and we read the, the passage that I just spoke in Ephesians. And, and uh, uh, prior to that, you know, it talks about being in submission to your husbands. Wives, submit to your husbands. They're, head of, they're, they're the head of the family. She couldn't even read the verse. She started to read the verse and she just read it silently. She wouldn't even speak it aloud. All I was doing was making the point that Jesus was the head of the church. I wasn't even talking about the marital situation yet. And so then we stopped and we had to talk about how the church is the bride of Christ and how Christ treats his bride the same way a husband ought to treat his wife in this life. If you give yourself for your wife, listen, she'll be in subjection to you from now on because you're treating her the way she ought to be treated. And that's exactly how Christ treated the church. He gave His life for us. Why in the world would we never be in subjection to Him or even question whether or not we're going to be in subjection? He has promised to care for the church. He's promised to save his mem- uh, the members. The promise is to save. And He made this last promise. No one can steal our salvation. They can't take it away from us. Jesus promised, My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. John 10, 29. We cannot be forced out of the hand of the Father. Now, we might leave the hand of the Father on our own volition, but we will never be forced. That's what the revelation is about, right? Maintain your faith. Be faithful even unto death. Revelation 2, 10. And you'll receive a crown of righteousness. Listen. No one can make us be unfaithful. No one can steal from us what God has given us. Evidently, the Christians in Rome were a little bit concerned. They were a little bit concerned about Satan's power and perhaps his ability to force them to leave God. In response to that, 
Paul said, Romans 8.31, he said, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? A few sentences later, uh, verses 35 through 39, he went into this uh, uh, list of things that cannot separate us from Christ. He talked about tribulations. He talked about distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, all those things that happen in the world. He said they cannot separate us. No one can pluck the faithful member. No one can steal the salvation of anyone who is in the Father's hand. Now, we've got to get into the Father's hand first, right, before we even have to worry about that. We have to be able to obey the gospel and understand. And we need to be able to tell people how to become a Christian. We need to be able to give a reference for that, right? <clears throat> That's something that, that God expects from us. We talked about the conscience this morning and how we train the conscience. We train the conscience the same way David did, and we train our conscience the same way Jeremiah did. His word was in us. We need to be able to talk about the plan of salvation. Give reference to that. I'm not good at memory work, but I can remember a reference. Okay? And I can look it up in my Bible. We need to understand there are a litany of passages that talk about the necessity of faith. John 8, 24, Jesus Himself said it. A lot of times I like to go to those verses where Jesus Himself spoke it. That doesn't mean when Paul talked about it in Romans 10, 17, it's not just as, as powerful. But I like sometimes to talk about and use the words Christ used. Unless you believe that I am He, you'll die in your sins. John 8, 24. If I can remember it, anybody can. Talk about repentance. Jesus talked about repent. Uh, uh, unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Where's that, Luke 13? And uh, he, he made that two statements. Two, two sentences in that chapter. They're about two or three sentences apart. Unless ye repent, ye shall likewise perish. He talked about confessing him, Matthew chapter 10, verses 31, 32, or 32, 33, 1. I'm not good at memory work, but I know the, the reference. I can look it up, right? And now, of course, he's not talking about the confession prior to baptism. He's talking about living that confession, but there is an application there, right? Because the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, verse 37, made that public declaration that he believed Jesus Christ was the Son of God. We see him going down into the water to be baptized. We read about Paul being told to be baptized, wash away his sins. We go back to, uh, that's Acts twenty two sixteen. We go to Acts two thirty eight, which is one we all know, right? Repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. We talk about faithful living. We mentioned Revelation 2.10. Of course, within that context, we're talking about persecution, but it applies. It applies. However death comes, it doesn't matter. We need to be faithful. Uh, 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, Paul said he was faithful. He fought a good fight. He kept the faith. He knew, some, he knew there was a crown of righteousness awaiting him. We need to tell people that. We need to understand as Christians that sometimes we need help. Sometimes we need to be forgiven of sin. Listen, we're not sinners, but we make mistakes from time to time. And sometimes we make really big mistakes. And sometimes we need to make a confession of those mistakes acknowledging guilt in an area. Again, and I've said this a lot, and I believe it, repentance does not necessitate revelation. But this whole idea of coming up before a congregation of people saying, well, if I've done something. Well, brother, did you do it or not? Did you do something or did you not do something? You know, If I've done something. Now, I know whether I've done something or not. And so, I, that doesn't mean I have to get up and give every detail and air every piece of dirty laundry that is in my past, but I do have to acknowledge I have wronged 
people and God. And the ones who know about it, know about it. And the ones who don't, don't need to know about it. All they need to understand is that person acknowledged his shortcoming. And then God will forgive us if we'll repent of that, stop doing it, and pray to Him. Sometimes we have to make that confession publicly, right? Let's never allow that to stand in between us and heaven. We need to be able to uh, have enough uh, courage about us because Christ had courage when He went to the cross. We need to have that same courage. If you're here tonight and you need to answer the Lord's invitation, let's leave here understanding that the church is eternal. It's never going to be destroyed. The members of the church, they're going to march their way right into the, through the gates of heaven. They're going to be escorted by Jesus Himself right into the eternal abode. It's never going to end. And they will be with Him forever, for always. Unending. Time no longer in existence. And there's nothing that's a greater thought than that. If you need to answer the invitation tonight, do that as we stand and as we sing.